Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you give us many gifts. We thank you that um, you, you bless us in ways of which we're not even fully aware. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have uh, given us uh, the ability to know you better through the hearing and the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would inhabit my words now. These are the the poor words of a sinful, uh, rebellious man. Lord, I pray that your spirit would perfect them and write them on our hearts, that we would understand what it means to be the people of God and to know that you are good in all ways, all of the time. So Lord, we commit uh, this sermon to you. We commit our hearts to you. Give us the humility to receive what you have for us. All of this we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, a life well-lived. Think about that phrase for a moment. What does it mean for you? The question likely has as many answers as there are people in this room this evening. A life well-lived, does that mean a, a life devoted to improving one's own station in life? Does it mean making the world a better place? Does it mean living to see your children and grandchildren walk solidly in faith? Maybe it means acquiring wealth to pass on as a legacy to future generations or passing on a legacy of knowledge and moral integrity. Perhaps it involves championing a cause, pursuing social justice, or helping those less fortunate than yourself. There are hundreds of ways to answer that question, what is a life well lived. But for us, there are so many answers because we view that question very subjectively. But rather than subjectively, with the focus on us, the Lord views life objectively. As the psalmist states in verse 2, before anything existed, anything at all, even the notion of our universe and our small lives upon it, from everlasting to everlasting You are God. In other words, the one who in verse 1 is the singular dwelling place or refuge of man for all generations, the one who in verse 2 brought forth the mountains and formed the earth and the world, the one who in verse 3 has absolute power over life and death and who sovereignly wills when and how all men are born and all men will die. Psalm 90 is a prayer for God's people of old, but like all of Scripture, it is a prayer meant not only for the saints of old, but for us today as well. It's a prayer of lament because of the difficulties of life in a fallen world. But it's also a prayer of hope and assurance because it acknowledges that God is the one the only one in whom we might hope in the midst of hardships and trials. It's a prayer through which God's people were and still are drawn to him and receive hope. 
Psalm 90 is an encouragement to the saints of old as well as to all of us this evening to live life well in the Lord. And so we'll look at this psalm under three headings, God's eternal nature, man's fallen nature, and man's redeemed nature. God's eternal nature, man's fallen nature, and man's redeemed nature. The first point, God's eternal nature in verses 1 and 2. Psalm 90 begins with a testimony to God's eternal faithfulness and in particular his covenant faithfulness to his people. Although the psalm is attributed in verse 1 to Moses, most commentators believe that it was written much later, probably during the post-exilic period in the late 6th or early 5th century B.C., It's likely attributed to Moses because it is in the style of a prayer that Moses would have prayed. Or perhaps it's a prayer that Moses actually prayed and was part of the oral tradition that was passed down from century to century to century until it was written down much later. So as we think about what this prayer, this psalm, meant in its original context, And assuming that it was written in the post-exilic period, what was going on in the land of Israel during that time? The time recorded at the beginning, I'm sorry, beginning with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah when the first Jews returned from their exile uh, in the uh, land of Babylon and later in the land of Persia. Those Jews of the post-exilic period returned to a land that had been utterly ruined by centuries of judgment from God as well as destruction from Babylon in the late 6th century BC. And, and these men and women needed a reminder that the covenant, the solemn promise God made with his people was still in force and that God was still present with his people in the land despite the fact that so much about the land and about them had changed. Think about what the the land of Israel was to the people of ancient Israel. It was more than just a a political place to live. It was more than just a a spot on a map. The, The land that God gave to his people Israel was the sign of a covenant that God had made with Abraham and with his offspring. God said, I will give you this land as an everlasting inheritance. This this land is the evidence that I am with you, that I am your God, that you are my people, that I love you, and my presence will be with you in the midst of it. And so it was. The temple where God's presence was was, uh, said to dwell was in the midst of Jerusalem, which was in the midst of the land. But now all of that was gone. The temple was gone. The land of Israel, the land of Judah, the the southern kingdom uh, of the divided uh, kingdom of Israel was in shambles. What proof did people have that God was still their God? And so verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 90 remind 
the worshiper of old, that God has been the dwelling place or the refuge of the faithful throughout all generations of humanity. Just think about the significance of that statement. The psalmist is saying, yes, Lord, your glory dwelt in the temple. Your glory, in a larger sense, dwelt throughout the land of Israel. But we realize now that those things are gone, that they just pointed to something greater. They, they, they were earthly uh, pictures that pointed to a heavenly reality that is infinitely greater. And what the psalmist says is, God, you have actually been our dwelling place. The land was a gift from you. But really, you are our refuge. Verse 2 in particular points to the fact that God existed long before he brought anything that exists into being. Even Judah's mountains on which Abraham gazed 15 centuries prior are infinitely young when compared to the God who made them. The God who had determined to call his people to himself before the earth existed. And again, what a comfort these words must have been to a people who had returned to a land that their parents and grandparents saw ruined as the result of the collective faithlessness of the people of Israel. But the psalm isn't stuck in time. It had one meaning for its original audience 2,500 years ago, but it is just as meaningful, if not more so, for us today. We live in a world that has been utterly ruined by sin. There there are many beautiful things about this world, and yet none of it is the way it ought to be. None of it functions the way God created it to function at its best. Every part of it, every part of us, is impacted by the fall into sin. We face the consequences of our own sin. We're forced to live with the consequences of the sins of those around us. We, we all live in a world which is utterly broken because of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 8.22 that the whole creation is literally groaning because of the effects of sin upon it. I don't know about you, but some days I feel that groaning. What pain and brokenness are you experiencing this evening? Where are you groaning? Where is your spirit in turmoil because of the effects of brokenness, because of the effects of sin in your life? How do we as a, as a church experience that this evening as, as we walk through many trials together right now? And how might it help all of us to fall back into the arms of a faithful father who knows our pain and wants to offer us comfort? And what might it look for us to consider God as our dwelling place, our refuge, as the saints of old did, instead of looking for God to fix our circumstances? What would it look like if, like the psalmist, we could say, you, Lord, right now, are our dwelling place, and that is more than sufficient. Moving on to the second point, man's fallen nature. 
verses 3 through 11, we see a bitter lament of God's people. You know what a lament is. Uh, A lament is what we generally avoid doing ourselves because we don't like sitting in our own pain, in our own sorrow, or in our own disappointment. And that's precisely what a lament is and does. It puts words to the deeply sad emotions that we don't usually like to acknowledge because they hurt and they make us feel weak and powerless. A Reformed pastor named Mark Vrogop came out with a book in 2020 called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's a a good book, which I would recommend. In it, he invites God's people to embrace the practice of lament in their lives as a way to not only name their emotions and take their petitions before the Lord, but to submit themselves to God's process of sanctification in their lives. My friends, God doesn't allow us to go through deep waters just for the sake of getting wet. He doesn't put us in the midst of a trial just to see how we're going to to act. He allows us to experience hard things in order that we would be sanctified. And to be sanctified means that we would literally be made holy as we face, as we live rather, in the tension of having circumstances cause emotions for us that are unpleasant and that we want to avoid and that we just, we we, we can't deal with. To the extent that we do what the psalmist urges us to do here and make God our refuge, we are sanctified because our faith is built up and the faith around us, uh, the faith rather of others around us is built up as they see us submit ourselves to the work of the Lord. And that is the glory side of lament. That if, we're willing, if we willingly rather participate in it, God uses it as part of our sanctification. Because instead of denying and trying to escape or control the circumstances that cause us suffering and pain, we instead cry out to God and ask him to be present with us in the darkness. This is what James talks about in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's only through the trial that we become complete in the Lord, that we become sanctified. The psalmist here in Psalm 90 gives voice to the collective cry of the people. Listen to the metaphors that the psalmist uses and see if any of them might come close to the ways in which you've felt about God. He says in verse 3, you return man to dust. Well, what good is dust? When we get dust on our feet as we walk outside, When we come in, we scrape off our shoes or we take off our shoes so we don't track it through the house. Dust is of no value. We get rid of it. Is that what you think man is worth, God? In verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it's past. 
Have you ever tried to focus on a single object on the side of a road when you're in a car traveling at 70 miles an hour? Can, can you do that? Maybe if you have some superpower where you can slow down time and do all that uh, weird sci-fi stuff, maybe you can, but you, most people can't. It's just a blur. You, you can't focus on something that's passing by so quickly, and that's what the psalmist is, is positing here, that it feels to him like God doesn't pay any more attention to us than he does to something insignificant like a blade of grass on the side of a road. In verses 5 and 6, the psalmist compares us with parched grass in the desert. You know how deserts work. They're cool at night. They get hot during the day. And so at night, as the temperature lowers and the dew point uh, comes up, dew forms, it waters the grass and refreshes it and makes it new. But as soon as the sun comes out, the temperature rises, that grass is literally toast. You know, we live uh, in Glenside, and we have a beautiful home with a porch, front porch, that faces west. And um, because I love plants, if you come up to my office here, you'll see more plants, guaranteed, than anyone else at 10th has. But I, I love plants on our front porch. We have a number of potted plants that we take in in the winter and I put out there in the summer. But that porch gets so hot when the sun is on it that if I forget to water those plants even one day in the summer, those plants wilt and they're of no use. That's what the psalmist is saying it feels like to be in relationship with the Lord. In verses 7 through 11, the psalmist talks about the reality of our sin and the fact that our sin, even the sin about which no other human being knows, makes God intensely angry. Have you ever felt ashamed? So ashamed that you wanted to run away and hide? That's the kind of exposure that the psalmist is talking about here. The, the, the psalmist says, Lord, I... My, my own sin burns so hotly within me that I just want to hide from you to avoid the exposure. And the psalmist talks about the consequences of sin too. In verse 10, he says that we spend our lives in toil and trouble. Is that what your life seems like at times? Toil and trouble brought, brought, on, brought on rather by your own sin or the sin of others or just the brokenness of the world in general. Now, I mentioned earlier that, Psalm, that uh, verses 3 through 11 are a bitter lament. They're a bitter lament because the psalmist here is feeling the overwhelming burden of sin, a burden that was foretold to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, in the book of Genesis. And if you're not familiar with the events of the story, Adam and Eve were the first people created by God. And before sin entered the world, they had everything. They had a perfect world. They had a perfect relationship with God. And because there was no sin, nothing died. Nothing wore out. Nothing went wrong. God gave Adam and Eve a single command to follow. In Genesis 2.17, he said, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. One, one command. A former pastor of this church, Paul Tripp, tells the story of 
his son, who as a toddler was told not to touch any of the electric sockets in the house. And how when he was told he could not do that, that was the singular thing that he wanted to do. Paul Tripp talks about how every time he turned his back, he or his wife turned his back, that kid was trying to stick something in one of those sockets. And that, in in the fullness of time, is something that Adam and Eve experienced in their lives too. They were drawn to that tree because Eve first and then Adam was deceived and they ate the fruit of that tree which God had commanded them not to eat. They sinned. And there were consequences, definite consequences to their sin. Everything began to fall apart. If you have a Bible open now, keep your finger in Psalm 90 and then uh, flip back to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 7. These are some of the effects of the fall. I'm not going to read them. I'm going to paraphrase them. Genesis 3. In verses 7 and 8 in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve experienced shame. Shame in which they first hid from each other and then from God. And then, then rather, in verses 14 and 15, the Lord says that humanity would be in a spiritual war from that point on with the serpent, the serpent who deceived Eve and then Adam, with Satan. In Genesis 3.16, childbearing and even raising children would become a painful experience. Can I get an amen? Genesis 3.16 also says that the marriage relationship and by extension all human relationships would become contentious and full of pain. Because as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, as sinners, the, the core orientation of our hearts is not to be in loving relationship with one another, to serve one another. The orientation of our hearts is to serve ourselves. And that is a recipe for conflict in relationships. In Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18, the Lord says that the very earth itself is cursed because of man's sin. And the labor to which men and women set their hands would from then on be difficult and fraught with problems. In Genesis 3.19, we read that human bodies will deteriorate and die and will return to the dust from which Adam was created. It's what the psalmist refers to in verse of Psalm 90. And then in Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden and their relationship with God was broken. It's a pretty hopeless-sounding series of consequences from one sin, but it gets worse because we, we know this ourselves, uh, but Paul tells us in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so what he's saying is we have all inherited Adam's sin nature. And so what we see here is that the consequences of sin aren't limited to 
one or two people in one place in time, they spread to all people throughout all of the succeeding epochs of human history. The consequences of sin is a pandemic that makes the pandemic of 2020 look like a bad cold. A minister in our denomination who went to be with the Lord last year, Timothy Keller, describes the effects of sin as causing all things to disintegrate. And he used this illustration. Uh, he, He encouraged people to think of what it would look like to put a piece of wood in a burning fire and and to watch it. And he said, just as fire breaks down the molecular bonds of a piece of wood and literally disintegrates it, the the parts of the, the, the composition of the wood fall apart, so our work, our relationships, our world, and our own bodies are disintegrated by the effects of sin. And this is the reality against which the writer of Psalm 90 cries out. How long, he cries, how long will we suffer under the effects of your wrath, under the penalty of the curse for sin? And before we leave the second point, I want to ask you, what do you do with the pain and the suffering in your own life? Do you avoid talking about it, hoping that it will just fade away, Or do you work really hard to try and change your circumstances so that the pain ends? My experience has been, personally, that God always has something to teach me when I'm in the midst of suffering. And I think that's what James was getting at in the quote from James 1 that we read earlier. What God seems to want out of us in the midst of suffering is our attention so his spirit can minister to us What he wants out of us is our trust so that we really do believe that he is a good and faithful God who loves us even as sinners. And what he wants from us is repentance, which is part of the process of sanctification so that we would willingly submit to his law and so that we would willingly submit to the work of his spirit and we would be utterly transformed from the inside out. The way that we get there, though, is through honestly and humbly lamenting our circumstances and our pain to the Father who cares for us, to crying out with words similar to what we read in the middle part of Psalm 90. It's a hard thing to do, but it's something that reaps tremendous benefits if we submit ourselves to it in faith. The final point, man's redeemed nature in verses 12 through 17. The final part of the psalm is a plea for God to reverse the effects of the curse for sin that is, uh, are levied rather in Genesis 3. And so look back at Psalm 90 with me, starting in in verse 12, and I'm going to uh, paraphrase what's what's said there. In verse 12, our lives are short, Lord, so teach us wisdom that we would use our numbered days wisely for your glory, Lord, and not our own, not selfishly or hopelessly. 
In verses 13 and 14, Lord, restore your close, intimate relationship with us that we would experience your steadfast love and rejoice in your presence instead of hiding from you. In verse 15, relieve the suffering that we experience every day. There, there is a place, brothers and sisters, for praying that God would change our circumstances. In verse 16, let us see your power actively at work in redeeming us and protecting us and continue redeeming and restoring us for all generations that our children and future generations would see it and give you glory. And in verse 17, bless us and cause us to thrive and take away the curse on our labor. May what we do with our hands be blessed by you to endure. Essentially, what the psalmist asks for in Psalm 90 is that all which has been disintegrated would be reintegrated, that all which has been broken by sin would be restored, that all that has been wounded would be healed, and that death itself would be reversed. The psalmist never lived to see this prayer answered. And parenthetically, perhaps another reason that Psalm 90 is entitled A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, in verse 1, is that just as Moses waited for 40 years and could only see the land of promise but never enter it himself, the psalmist knew by the Holy Spirit that this prayer would be answered only by another whom he would never live to see. And Psalm 90 has been answered in the coming of the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The psalmist is right. To to God, a thousand years are like a day, and God has been waiting from eternity past to redeem us and proclaim his faithful love to us. For those of you who have children or care for children, do you know how painful it is to withhold goodness from your child for a time in order to discipline him or her? You, you can't wait for the discipline to end in order to be reconciled with your child and to show them your faithful love and forgiveness. So if that's how human parents with all of their sin feel about their children, imagine how infinitely greater God's anticipation was to reconcile his people to himself all the way through redemptive history from Genesis 3 up until the New Testament. And in the Gospels, we read that in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus to die in our place. The Bible says Jesus came as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and that through Christ, God has already reconciled us to himself. The way that a propitiation works is that blood has to be shed. One has to die and atone through death for the sin of another. And Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins in full, and his resurrection from the grave three days later began the process of turning back all of the effects of the curse in Genesis 3. Death itself has been defeated for all who belong to Christ for all time. The prayer of Moses in Psalm 90 has been answered. We see that in many ways. In verse 12, God gave us the Holy Spirit to teach us wisdom. In verses 13 and 14, God is present with us and offers his steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. 
In verse 15, for those who trust in Jesus, though there are still the effects of the curse that endure, he allows us to participate with him in the process of restoring all things, including ourselves and one another. In verse 16, through faith in Jesus, we see him reigning at his Father's side, and through his Spirit, the free gift of salvation goes out to many. In verse 17, work is still difficult, but the Lord gives us endurance and patience with joy. And for the work of salvation to which the Lord calls us to join him, nothing, not even the gates of hell, can stop it from moving forward in power. Through the Holy Spirit, we have faith to believe that God is working powerfully in us and that his work will one day become complete. One day, as Tolkien puts it in uh, Lord of the Rings, everything sad is going to come untrue. But we're not there yet. In the early 20th century, a Reformed theologian named Gerhardus Voss came up with the phrase already but not yet to describe this in-between period, this liminal period in which we live. And what he means by that is that for those in Christ, all of the petitions of the prayer in Psalm 90 have already been answered positively by God. God has already granted them to us, but we have not yet taken possession of them in their fullness. We see aspects of them shine through the darkness, and we can enjoy them in part, but we don't yet experience those gifts in their fullness. Nonetheless, God invites us to rest in his promises, to believe that we will one day see those promises, those prayers fully realized, and to live today in the fullness of the freedom of our redemption in Christ. So as we close, how might we respond to God's invitation? How might we live life well as God's redeemed people? Here are a few self-assessment questions and suggestions for you to consider. One is, is your own life marked by joy and contentment, or are you often fearful and without hope? If you are often fearful and without hope, then perhaps you'd benefit from asking a friend to sit down with you and help you lament with hope so that you can learn how to trust more deeply in God's promises. Do you struggle with bitterness and resentment toward others? Are there people in your life whom you simply can't forgive? Perhaps you would benefit from from inviting another believer into your situation so that he or she can help you rest more in God's faithful love for you so you can share it with others. The only way that we can show forgiveness to people who have wronged us is to have experienced that forgiveness ourselves. And then we're able to share it with one another. Another question is, do you feel like God is far away from you or that he doesn't love you in particular? Maybe you feel as though you've sinned so much that God could never forgive you. Or maybe he has forgiven you, but you feel as though because you continue to struggle with sin that you're kind of a second-class Christian. Perhaps it would be helpful to sit and talk with someone else 
who also struggles with experiencing the pleasantness of God's presence and the joy of forgiveness so that together you can help build one another up with the promises and the, the uh, proclamations in Scripture that will more surely and more firmly root and ground you in who you are in Christ. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are already the beloved of God. Nothing can take that away. Another question, do you often find that you anger easily or that you need to be in control? Perhaps it would help to spend time with someone else who experiences rest and peace in the Lord's presence and learn with them and from them how they trust in the Lord with the hard things and disappointments that they experience. And friends, note that each one of these suggestions comes with an invitation to engage not only with the Lord, but with other believers. Scripture tells us that the church is the primary means of sanctification that the Lord has given to us. He's given us to one another to build one another up in faith, to wash one another with the word as with water, to speak the truth and love to one another so that we, we, we would become perfect in every way, complete in every way. You can't do this on your own. You need the people around you. You need the people in your small groups. You need the people in your Bible studies. You need the people in your parish. You need the people who are sitting next to you, to you or in front of you or behind you today. We are called to walk through life not as individuals, but as the singular body of Christ. Especially as we start this new year, will you commit to offering yourself with humility and with joy to your brothers and sisters around you? And if you feel as though there is no one with whom you could easily venture that kind of relationship, Would you talk with me? Would you talk with one of the elders or deacons in the church, one of the other pastors? We can help you find ways to engage with others in the church that will be beneficial in in helping you not only build up, uh, be built up rather, uh, in these ways, but so that you yourself can share the gifts the Lord has given you and participate in building the body up in love. And so the short definition for a life well lived is that we would submit in humility to the Lord and to one another. May it be so for us all. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it sure is uh, a lot easier to preach about this than it is to live it out. So I pray for every man and woman and young person Uh, not only in this room tonight, but in this church, that we would deeply desire to be in relationship with you and with one another in a way that is transformative. Lord, I I pray that you would open the eyes of uh, people who are here and who are just struggling with the isolation of their own sin or or the effects of sin uh, on them. Lord, would you open their eyes to see other brothers and sisters around them who can help? 
Would you give them the humility and the faith to reach out to them and ask for help? Would you show us how to come alongside each other and love one another well? Would 10th Church be known not only as a place with good preaching and good music, but a place where people are transformed by the gospel to live as the very body of Christ. Lord, would you make this happen? Give us faith to believe that you will. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.